Thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions helps accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated returns filing, and more. Listen for a special offer later in the show. Hi, everyone. This is Oh My Fraud. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Welcome to our inaugural episode. We're super excited to be launching this thing off. This is this is the uh, realization of a dream. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean... <laughs> yeah, maybe your dream. Not so much my dream. <laughs> to be recording a podcast late on a weekday evening when my kids are screaming upstairs for no money whatsoever... Yeah, that's the dream. That, Come on. that, that is the dream. Come no, on. but seriously, folks, but seriously, folks, it is a great pleasure to be uh, doing a podcast with my good friend, Greg Kite. We've been collaborating for years now, Greg, and this Decade. is our first podcast. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, mm-hmm. it's, whew, I forget my life is <laughs> my life is definitely measured in decades now. But yeah, I mean, this is our first podcast and um, it's exciting. I, I am genuinely thrilled to be doing this with you. As of my, you approached me a few months ago, said, hey, I think it'd be very cool if we did a fraud podcast together because we've had just great times uh, doing fraud webinars together, but we've also mm-hmm. felt a little constrained in the medium of webcasting we- webinars in webinar land. Uh, and I was like, ah, that sounds wonderful, but I'm really busy. So come back when you think you have an idea of how our podcast could change the world. And then... You came back to me with an idea of how you thought our podcast could change the world. And here we are. And I mean, to be fair and full disclosure, it wasn't my idea. It was our producer, Blake Oliver's idea. He, he was an easy sell, I have to say. It was a roughly a, a 50-word email. And he's like, yes, I uh, you're hired. I'm willing to put up with all of your bullshit, you and Greg's bullshit, <laughs> to do this podcast. And we're like... Great. Right. Well, great. And it, yeah. kinda, it, it feels like we're taking advantage of him. But then I think when I step back, I realize that he's the uh, puppet master and we yes. are, we're, we're merely pawns in his chess game. So here's a question for you, Greg. You, you believe that this podcast has the power to change the world. I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> so why don't you elaborate <laughs> on that? A little well, bit. Well, well. first off, we are the world's only true crime podcast that's hosted by CPAs or former or erstwhile CPAs. And, uh, and so we're going to be able to bring a whole new perspective to the true crime genre just simply from the backgrounds and the experiences that we both have. But then also, again, thanks to our producer, Blake, he's been able to figure out the code in terms of how to get continuing education credits from listening to a damn podcast, which makes sense. We've all thought that for years. He's figured it out. And that right there, that's that's that alters the course of the human history right there, at least for the 400,000 humans on earth who have a CPA license and want to maintain it. So that's how we're changing the world. And Caleb, tell them about what, what we're even talking about on this episode. This first episode was a lot of fun. It's a very unusual story. The whole fraud had been perpetrated for more than my entire life. The perpetrator or the mastermind, I should say, has been sentenced. And it was such a fascinating story. I I, I don't have a sense of how well known this story is. And so it felt like the perfect first episode. And in this episode, we're going to open your mind and your, your, uh, your experience to the world of printer toner piracy. So buckle up for that. And as soon as we get back, we're going to get into the godfather of toner pirates. So stick around. Greg, so here, here's what I'm thinking about, man. You work in an office, right? And like, but like, I forget. You're the the comptroller, and it's the it's the stupidest title. I don't even know how you landed on that. Or it, did no, someone give it to you? Because it's the stupidest. No, no, no. I I'm able to come up with my own title, and oh. I specifically chose comptroller because it's ridiculous, and right. I want and it, to. It's but it's not typical. A comptroller isn't typically a person in a for a business. It's usually a government position, right? 
Right. right. Okay. But, but if you look at comptroller, it's just, it's like, like the German way to say controller or something like that. So it's the same thing is, <laughs> is just right. It's just it, it, so, in English. All you have to do is drop an N and add an MP and you've got the German version of the word. It, exactly. <laughs> That's the basic formula. All right. So, 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 but you also run the office, right? Yeah. Okay. So here's my question. Yeah. You are, you, do you buy a lot of office supplies? Uh, I do. I buy basically all of the office supplies okay. that we use. Okay, great. And so of all the office supplies that you purchase on a regular basis or even like just a infrequent basis, do you have a good sense of, of what is the biggest ripoff in office supplies? Like where you've, where you look at the price of what you're paying for something and you look at it and you go, man, this is a total racket. Like, I can't believe this is what I pay. Do you have an opinion about that? Or you're just like, you just pay yeah. or do you, you just pay what you pay what it is? And you're like, fuck it. Well, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's toner. It's printer toner. And to the point where we're not a paperless office, but we mm -hmm. use very, very little paper yep. at my business. And we're at the point where every time we need to buy toner, we actually look at what it's going to cost us to buy a new printer because <laughs> it, because it might be a better right. idea right. to just do that. But that being said, we also, we had a, a, a contract with Les Olson company for years yep. where it was kind of this all in contract where they would come and service this, this gigantic copy fax. Right. That felt like, felt like that was from another century, right? It, it. It was at least from another decade. I can tell you that much. Yeah. And part of the all in, I, I don't know, we spent five or $600 a year for this contract and it included our toner. And again, we don't use a whole lot of toner. So, so the it toner, was, it was kind of toner was included. Yeah. It was buried in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, yeah, and we, that, if I understand it right, cause I'll be honest, I haven't had a real job in a very long time and I don't <laughs> think about any of these things. And so I, I just want to make sure I understand how it really works, but my, my wife is very hardworking and she understands this stuff. And if I understand it from you and if I understand it from her, that is a typical arrangement where if you're leasing a copier, you don't have to buy toner. You just call your rep up and you're like, Hey, we're out of toner. Can you drop by and give us some? And they're like, yeah, yeah. It's part of the deal. Yeah. And that's what they do. Yeah. And we actually even own our copy machine, but okay. it's still a thing where they're, they're more than willing to sell us a service agreement that includes toner. Right. They're like, Hey, Hey, this is going to cost a lot of money. How about you give it to us and just don't worry about right. it. Right. And then it's like, can you break down the cost of how much this would have cost right. if we didn't go with yeah. you? No, so, no, can't do that. So, oh man. Okay. So then do you have a sense, if you don't mind sharing for you guys, what does toner cost? Do you, do you have it down like per ounce or per cartridge? Or like, do you have an idea of what it would work out to? Or, or is it just like baked into the price and you just like, you don't think about it, but you just know it's a lot. Do don't think about it. We just, we just know it's a lot. And like I said, every year we've renewed this contract until this year. I mean, honestly, this year we looked at it at, at what the, what that would cost to renew that contract. This literally happened in 2021 yeah. where we were like, Hey, this machine's old instead of renewing the contract, let's take that money and let's use like 60% of that budget just to buy a new, a new, uh, new printer. And we'll see how that goes. And if, if it only lasts us one year, like I said, it costs about 60% of what the, what the uh, service contract did. And we could throw it off a cliff and buy another printer next year. And they come with, they come with toner, right. damn it. Right. So I came across an article from Consumer Reports. Did you happen to read this same article? Did you come across it? I did this? not. Okay. Uh -uh. So I found a Consumer Reports article from 2018. I'll, I'll just read. I think this was the lead. I think this is the first paragraph, but I'll read it. It's enough that printer ink might be the most expensive liquid you buy. Even the cheapest ink in replacement cartridges cartridges at about $13 an ounce costs more than twice as much as Dom Perignon champagne, while the priciest, <laughs> closer to $95 an ounce, makes gasoline seem like a bargain. It's still far less painful than $12,160 per gallon, right? That's like, it, it, it is, it, it must be the most valuable commodity on earth. So toner, you just said that the, the, the priciest price per gallon the, right, of toner right. is 12,000 dollars. I think so. Well, if you figure, so if, if, if this is to be believed, the priciest uh -huh. toner that you can get is 
they're saying is close to $95 an ounce. So okay. I, I'm not good yeah. at getting ounces to gallons. You're the former math teacher, so you should do right. that. But like, it's a, it'd be even more than I, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's so it's like, it is, it is, it is the most val. It has to be the most valuable commodity on earth. I, I mean, it's gotta be pushing it. So, okay. I mean, so then, so then I, I mean, guess I'm a, I, I like drinking scotch. But I found a I found one that's accessible that I can buy a what a, a seven seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle of it for uh, ten bucks. Right, and I'm fine. That's it perfect. It does the job. Right. So okay, so this is where I'm going with this. I think because this stuff is so valuable, or maybe it's not valuable. It's just fucking expensive. It's just pricey shit. Uh, the fact that you can Google the the term or the phrase you can google toner pirate and millions of results will come up well in today's case the guy that we're looking at it was called the godfather of the california toner pirates right. which means that that implies there's lots of them and he's just the godfather in he's not the godfather of the colorado toner pirates right. he's not the godfather of the utah toner pirates he's just simply the godfather of the california toner pirates so there's at least going to be 49 other godfathers of state toner pirates I right think. right i just, mean i'm just using logic i mean that's that's i mean so first i should say <clears throat> they're mixing some villainy here so like godfathers and pirates like eh but it's right. so it's a little sloppy but i do appreciate yeah. toner tonernews.com for their headline as as someone who wrote a lot of cheeky headlines for a living for a long while right. i appreciate it very much i think that what what you said before we got on the hot mics i think is amazing there's certain industries that are ripe for uh destructive uh innovation and there's some industries that are ripe for fraud and toner sales is ripe for fraud yeah. because people don't have any damn clue. They know it's expensive. They know they're just going to have to clench up and take whatever price they need because they got to print stuff. But it's so obscure, so opaque uh, in yep. terms of how the pricing even happens that people don't know that. But they know they need it and they're afraid because they know it could even get more expensive than it already is as you've established the current most expensive liquid on the face it's of like, planet Earth. It's like, it's, it's like, I feel like toner, like it, this is the dystopia that we live in. But the story of this guy, Gilbert Michaels, this whole thing is remarkable on a, on a number of fronts. We are going to get into this case, the, the godfather of the toner pirates. We're going to get into how it worked who got ripped off, how much they got ripped off for. It's a fascinating case. So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and get into it. Right, Greg? Absolutely. All right, man. Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Our sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and for your clients. Whether you're a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other indirect and direct taxes. In October of 2021, IDC Marketscape named Avalara a leader in tax automation in three categories, small and mid-sized businesses, enterprise, and VAT. If you're considering tax automation, check out the independent IDC evaluations at omf.show slash Avalara. That's omf.show slash Avalara. And stick around because later we'll be telling you about a special offer for anyone who wants to learn more about Avalara. So, toner cartridge sales piracy. This is a massive thing. One of the things that I find fascinating about this is that 
the dude who did it. So Gilbert Michaels, I think when we looked at this, he was 79 when he was convicted, but that was yep. in 2019. So he's eight dudes, 81 years old now, but it says that his, his toner piracy began in the 1970s, which depending on, I mean, even <laughs> if you peg that in 1979, the end of the seventies, that's still 40 years of being a toner pirate. Yeah. That's a, that's a long time. He started when he was, when he was in his thirties, yeah, he that, started. It, he may be the most successful pirate of all time. He's not, you know, selling sailing the seven seas or anything. But in terms of like a long history or a long, fruitful career of fraud, he probably has Bernie Madoff beat. I don't know. In terms of longevity, definitely not in terms of of top dollar. You know what what he did? Because what was it? A hundred and well, no, that's the thing. He he might. Who knows how much it said? Because well, I, did you? Yeah. What, what was what was the total take? So I saw something that said in the six year period he like got 126 million dollars. Yeah, or something yeah, yeah. Like that. So I got a I got a couple things here. here. Department of Justice press release said over one six years, just a six year span, victims were induced to send more than 126 million dollars to the telemarketing scammers. And so we'll get into like how telemarketing worked and in, fit into it all. But basically, yeah. this is from the DOJ press release too. A West Los Angeles man, that's this guy, Gilbert Michaels, was sentenced today to 48 uh, months in uh, federal prison, plus an additional 28 months home confinement for orchestrating a decades-long, multi-million-dollar telemarketing scheme that defrauded more than 50,000 victims, including small businesses yeah. and charities, by posing as a regular supplier of printer, toner, and selling them toner at greatly inflated prices. It was a little confusing to me because then they go... They talk about this period of time, like in 1988, where he was prohibited. He got in trouble in the late right. 80s. But you're right. I read something else. I think it was the Market Watch article that I found that said it actually began in the 70s. So like long, long history. And it's it it's the fact that he was able to keep it going for, the, for this amount of time is it's surprising and yet not. I mean, I don't know how about about you, Greg, but like when small businesses are the victims, it just feels like it's something that can easily be, I don't know, it's it's easy for authorities to ignore um, until oh, it reaches yeah. some kind of critical mass, which this obviously did. So, right. 50, over 50,000 victims over the four decades that he was doing this, this crime. I mean, some of the victims, the ones that really, that they listed, because obviously they didn't list even, you know, 1% of the 50,000 plus victims, but of the short list that somebody else thought was interesting, the three that I thought were interesting is that this guy, this guy took money from a YMCA for donor cartridge. He took money from a Kentucky Steelworkers Union. By the way, giant balls, Gilbert Michaels, because something tells me you kind of don't want to fuck around with a steel workers union. That's that's the last that I I don't want to be on the shit list of a steel workers union. And then equally as ominous is he also he also stole money from a Christian preschool in Alabama. I mean, steel workers is one thing, but pre-K Alabama, uh Alabamans, Alabanians? <laughs> bad bad choice. Alabamans He's making some and, right. and and also at least, you know, you got to think it was a Christian preschool. So he's also, I think we can say God's mad at Gilbert Michaels. Okay. Can I say one other thing that's interesting too? Yeah, if this sure. did start in the seventies, they were selling, they were defrauding people out of toner for like the world's first printers. Yeah. So I, I was born in 1972. I graduated high school in 1990 and I was still using electric typewriters to like print, to, to type up papers in my senior year. And that was, that was 19. Did I graduate in 90? Yeah. I was a class in 1990. Yeah. The, that's the what math it was. works. So when did you first see a Xerox machine? That was, I mean, that was early. I mean, it's, they it's had, similar they to seeing those. your first Playboy, well, I realize, but like, I'm just trying to get right, you to remember. It's really locked. It's, well, I, it's okay, I'm so level. old that I remember, I remember in elementary school, they had mimeograph machines still oh, in my elementary school. I have no which, idea what that is. 
that it, it was pre it was pre copy machine. It was this weird thing where it was almost like I don't know if I was making copies or like spinning wool. It was the same technology. Got it. Yeah. No, that's a good visual. Spinning yeah. wool to make copies. Because mm -hmm. and spinning wool was actually how we that was our major fundraiser at school. <laughs> so that's how old I am. Well, we spun wool to, the fact to earn that, enough the fact milk that, money. The, the fact that this scam is nearly as old as you are is 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 impressive enough. So true, um, true. In any case, uh, but they, I'm just saying they got in early. That's they did. That's the big yeah, thing. It, well, these guys I, were they were ground floor. Yep, toner pirates, early they, movers, first they, movers, yeah. whatever. Yeah, early adopters. Yeah, they first, were on the front end first, of this first whole thing. fraud movers, something like that. Right. Initially. The main thing I saw was that this guy got in trouble for selling toner for 10 times, up to 10 times the price that it should have been sold for. And I was going, that's not illegal to do that. But <laughs> what is illegal? It's not. No, it's charging a high price. Right. Not illegal. Not illegal. At all. Nope. Not no, illegal. No. And so, in fact, it's, uh, it's, so, it, in fact, it's very good business practice, actually. It, it, yeah, it is. Which, again, is why very legally, like I said, I had a contract with Les Olsa Company where they may well have been also charging me 10 times the price of what of what toner should be as part of my contract. Let's let's talk a little bit about how it worked, shall we? So, Caleb, just to make it crystal clear and tell me if I'm wrong, this is how IDC and Gilbert Michaels, the godfather of toner piracy, did this scam, is they would call people up, they would pretend like they were that company's typical vendor, they would say, hey, toner prices are going up, but act now and we can lock in the old prices before they go up. The victim organizations say, that sounds like the right business decision for us to make. They'd sign an order agreement that was a legally binding or at least supposedly legally binding uh, agreement. And then IDC would send them an invoice along with the toner and say, pay this invoice. And then the company would go, holy crap, this does not seem like it's the old price. This is a ridiculous amount. And then they'd fight back. But IDC would say, hey, if you don't pay it, we're going to either take legal action. We're going to send you co to collections or in the off chance. And this did apparently this did happen from time to time. The IDC would cave and they'd say, OK, send the toner back. But we're going to charge you this ridiculously high uh, restocking fee. And that that's the nutshell of how this scam worked, right? Yeah, they either got them on the inflated invoice. They either got them mm -hmm. that way. Or they got them on the restocking. If they said, nope, we're not doing it, and they just send it back, then they'd say, great, so you owe us for the restocking. So they had basically, no matter what they did, they were going to be able to, to swindle them on one end or the other. So, Greg, do you, got, do you yeah. think you got it? Yeah, no. I. It's, it's, not, fine. Super, I it's not super complicated, right? No, it's not. not, not but a, it worked it's, it's incredibly, but it was incredibly effective. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? The Avalara for Accountants compliance automation platform helps accounting service providers grow their client base with sales tax prep and filing, business license management, and more. Avalara Managed Returns for Accountants was recognized as a best product in 2021 through C CPA Practice Advisors Technology Innovation Awards. Want to learn more? Later, we will tell you about a special offer. So, Caleb, this is a an actor's reenactment of how this fraud went down. So someone at IDC would make a call to a potential victim. And they so they make the call. It'd be like, bring, bring, bring. Good morning. This is Debbie at Jesus, Mary, and Joseph Christian Primary School. How may I help you? Well, God bless you today, Debbie. Well, God bless is, you. Thank you for calling. I, what, how can I help you? Well, I, well, you know what, Debbie? I actually called to help you because I am with uh, HP. That You guys have an HP uh, printer, don't you? Yes, sir, we do. 
fantastic. Your, your typical representative, he asked me to give you a call because we are having, and this sucks because I'm embarrassed. I'm already embarrassed at how expensive our oh, toner don't. is. I don't set the prices. It's all right. Just tell what, what's happening. Just tell Debbie. It's fine. It's fine. Just tell me what's going on. It's fine. Well, the toner prices are going up, even from where they're already at. And I hate oh, that. Wow. I feel like it's unconscionable. But here's the thing, and this is why this is why I'm calling you today, because we can actually, we've got a limited amount of time oh. where if you agree to buy five times what you usually do for your toner, I can lock in the old price. But like I said, the price is going up to, to double what it has been. Oh, my And land. you guys use a lot of toner anyways. You guys are going to go through five toner packets aren't you i honestly don't know i mean we do print we do print a lot of um pro-life pro-life bulletins that we hand out to the to the little ones you know the little girls especially like we try to get them you know we try to start that conversation early if we can but anyhow we we do go through a fair amount of toner so i want to make sure i understand this you're saying you're telling me that the price of toner is going up 10 times what we currently pay, but you can lock us in to the price that we've been paying. Exactly. And that's Whoa. the nice thing too. Even that is, even that, since, oh, that is so sweet of that. You can do that for us. That's so thoughtful. I really well, appreciate you calling. Absolutely. And I'm glad to do it. And just so you know, then one of the great things about toner, it doesn't go bad. So even if it takes you a while to work through it, you'll have it at the old price. You're really, you're really going to be able to stretch your donation dollars further by doing this. So Debbie, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fax over a purchase agreement to you. Uh, All All I need is your fax number. And I'll get right. this right over. You just have to sign it, fax it back to me, and we'll lock in that old price. Okay? Does that oh, sound good, Debbie? That sounds wonderful. Bless your wonderful. heart. Awesome. I mean, I have my assistant send it over. I've got like a hundred other people I got to call to try to help them out, just like I helped you out. So I'm going to let you go. God bless you. Thank you all so right. much. So is that is that what we're? I think we got it. So let's say Debbie gets the invoice for this ridiculous amount mm-hmm. that she does not, she is not expecting. So she calls and complains. Then what they're going to say is they're going to say, Hey, listen, you signed the contract. Yep. I was doing you a favor. You can't, I used the contract and I ordered this stuff. I can't eat this. And I have a legal document saying that you that you wanted me to ship it to you. So legally you are responsible now for paying me for that. And people can be intimidated into doing things that they wouldn't do when you just threaten legal action. Right. True story from me, from my business. We had a tenant who, who did it because it's a medical office building. He did imaging. He had an MRI machine in our building and, and he left because he, and he was kind of a jackass. So people like paid him a lot of money actually to leave our building and to get out of our, the, the, the LLC that owns the building. He built a new building, like a half a mile away from our building. And then he had his lawyer send us a letter saying we could no longer have the word imaging on our building. It's kind of like if you're a laundromat and you move your laundromat, and another laundromat moves in, they can say, hey, we're we're still a laundromat. <laughs> right. So I go to my attorney and I go, this guy's just full of crap, right? And my attorney says, yeah, he's totally full of crap. He can't sue you for that. But then the guy from the old imaging center, he starts taking official legal action. He wanted us to change his sign. He took official legal a- action against us. We had to engage our attorney to go through, to jump through the legal hoops and eventually we had paid my attorney more money than it would have cost to just change the damn sign to begin with just to do the legal dance. And at that point, I started sending emails to this uh, to this guy that just going, hey, we'll change the damn sign. Just drop everything because if at the beginning, changing the sign was going to cost us like 3500 bucks, I didn't want to spend that. We paid 4500 to my accountant, to, to my attorney. And I go back to this guy and say, just drop everything. We'll change it. Because I know that if we continue down this road of us saying we don't have to change the damn sign, it would have been at least twice what we already paid. So people can easily get bullied into doing what you want 
when you threaten legal action because they go, well, I could pay I could pay this $500 for this toner, or what am I going to do? Go get an attorney who charges $250 an hour, and I'm going to spend $500 just in the initial consultation to see if I don't have to pay this damn toner pirate godfather. Yeah, and then if in the, the New York Times article, and this is in other places too, they said, even if you manage to withstand the threats of like, what do they say? Turning them over to collections or taking legal action. Then right. what they would do is they would say, well, we're going to, if you send it back to us, we're going to charge you restocking fees. And so right. like they were getting it on both ends. It was, it was kind of an yeah. impressive, some impressive methods. It's sophisticated. They knew what they were doing. It's yeah. as if they'd been doing this for decades and had really had a <laughs> chance to, well, to, to refine this, the process. Well, and let's like, I, I was telling my wife about this story and she says to me, it hasn't happened recently, but she's like, oh yeah, I can remember getting calls at my office and somebody saying, hello, I'm calling from, you know, so-and-so, you know, your, your, your printer, uh, your, your copy machine, whatever, uh, supplier person place. And, uh, you have a, uh, our, our records show that you have the Darth Vader model. And like, my wife would be like, that's not our model. No, fuck off. And like, it was just, it was so <laughs> brazenly a scam. The telemarketing portion of this scam was basically just boiler rooms where they had people yeah. just working the phones. And they, at the yep. time, if they indicted like 30 people or something. Like, I don't remember the exact yeah. number, but they, they indicted like a couple dozen people. And yeah, and they must have just burning up the phones day after day after day, just like probably just going through the phone book, you know, and just yeah. calling every oh, business. Absolutely. And absolutely. so- well, and that's, and it's so funny because getting into this case, like digging into some of the dirt on this case, I saw multiple times they were going, it was a, it was your, your classic boiler room yeah. situation, the operation. And so because of that, I went back and I watched the 2000 film boiler room starring, uh, uh, Vin Diesel. Did you remember Vin Diesel was in that? He was a child. He was like 14 in this movie. But it was uh, it was pretty impressive. The movie wasn't impressive, was it? I, I liked it. I think it, it ended a little too abruptly. <laughs> and and honestly, I will say that was probably Vin Diesel's finest work. You watch him in that, and you go, his acting was a hundred times better than any Fast and Furious movie ever. And this was like one of his breakout roles because he actually like he he actually speaks in full sentences. Oh, and uh, and and he and his voice will fluctuate. It's it's amazing what he had back then. Wow. But it was the same thing. It was all like boiler room because it's pressure. You've got pressure probably starting with Gilbert Michaels going, hey, we gotta we gotta sell this toner and you're gonna be rich if you do it and I'm gonna be rich and I'm gonna beat you down if you're not making all these calls all day long. Do you have a conscience? You have a problem that we're selling toner for way more than it's worth to the YMCA, well, then get the hell out of here. There's somebody else who wants to make money if, if it's not you. They have scripts in the boiler room. The new guys were mm -hmm. given scripts saying, here's what you say when they say this. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure over 40 years, these guys had scripts as well. Oh, they had it down to overcome cold. objections. If your marks are small businesses, then you know it, it's going to be easier to intimidate them it's going to be easier to just hoodwink, hoodwink them right? into, as you were pointing out earlier, making decisions that they probably wouldn't, under ordinary circumstances, probably wouldn't do. They'd be like, this like just doesn't even pass the smell test, right? The one thing that I think is, is probably part of the reason that people weren't aware if they had an agreement, you know, whether they leased it or where they bought it, they probably didn't know that they, in fact, could just call their rep at any time and say, we need more toner, and they just bring it over, and it would you know, cost them nothing. But right. obviously, if you're talking about a small business, like it's not somebody's job to pour over the fucking lease agreement with your the, the company leasing you the photocopier. I mean, people don't have time to do that stuff. They're just running a small right. business. And so like, it's unfortunate that small businesses are easy marks. That makes them easy yeah. marks. One of the things that I thought was very interesting was the, the part of the reporting that they had that said, that uh, authorities caught onto the scheme in part because one of this one of the IDC's victims was uh, a Southern California storage company that only used typewriters. Yeah, 
and <laughs> and and I guess they got an invoice for toner cartridge, yeah. and they were like, "Well, this isn't right." And again, good on them. Deep into the two thousands, uh, <laughs> still using a typewriter. That's that's either either you are you are the ultimate of laggards in the adoption of innovation curve, or it was like the hipster yeah. uh, storage facility. <laughs> It was totally the hipster storage facility where it's like, right. oh, well, you know, we, we just type everything up. And yeah, um, they're, they're busy uh, muddling uh, mint for a, an artisanal mint julep while they type out their storage invoices on a typewriter to right. send by carrier pigeon to their customers. It's, uh, it was very, very cool, very cool storage facility. Very, very. <laughs> I mean, it's about as perfect ending. Well, I, I think there are other factors, but like this was one of yeah. the, one of the key things that helped them catch on to it. But it is kind of yeah. like it is kind of like cosmic justice in a way, where you're just like somebody in that boiler room called somebody up who was still using typewriters, and then that was the beginning right. of the end. I, I, I mean, the whole nature of this story, it just doesn't quite seem possible. It's one of the most interesting cases I've read about in quite some time. It it absolutely is. And, um, you know, the typewriter storage company was, was one of the key factors in terms of ending this whole scam. Right. But like you said, even in the, in the 1980s, there was some court orders against them. And that was a little confusing. Did, did you understand that? It was yeah. like the court order was like, Hey, you we're ordering you to not lie to your customers yeah. anymore. And it's like, no, is, like is that's that in the DOJ in the DOJ press release. It said, uh, I'm just reading in a series of court orders dating back to November, 1988, Michaels and his companies were prohibited from making false statements and they were required right. to provide oversight to quote, independent sales companies end quote. Michaels violated these court orders by working with the working with and providing financing to the supposedly independent boiler rooms that were engaged in right. deceptive and fraudulent practices, even though IDC received th hundreds of thousands of complaints, hundreds of thousands of complaints from That's victims amazing. claiming they had been defrauded. So essentially what you said is exactly right. They said, you can't lie anymore is basically. Yeah. Knock it off. Them. That was kind of, that was the, that was the quarter. Hey. Hey, Michaels, knock it off. And apparently that didn't do the, that didn't. He, he wasn't, he job. wasn't swayed one bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently, apparently not. And then there was a, a whole lot of people who were indicted with yep. this whole thing. Obviously Gilbert Michaels, he was the, he was the big dog at the company. So he went down. I want to say there was about a half a dozen other people who also were charged with crimes and the, the official crimes that came through for Gilbert Michaels uh, was one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud, 10 counts of mail fraud, and five counts of money laundering. And as a result, he was sentenced to four years in prison, plus an additional two years of house arrest, plus a $200,000 fine, which is crazy because they said the guy took $126 million in six years and his penalty is $200,000. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that didn't make that a lot makes of me want to become a toner pirate. Yeah, it seems like pretty decent ROI on something like that. I mean, account, you know, aside yeah. from the maybe the four years in prison, I don't, I don't know about that. But like, but yeah, the $200,000 fine caught my eye too. I'm just right. like, I mean, he was a multimillionaire, so it seems kind of like chump change. But anyway. Come on, he's the guy's 81, four years in jail. He he needs to slow down anyways. Yeah. So I mean it's he's you know. he's probably ready for a change. Yeah, I mean he could he could get one of those nice minimum security, you know, cots. Greg, I I don't know if we're ready to like transition into the to the lessons learned portion of this show, but one of the things that is coming to mind for me is that small businesses are it's so hard to run a small business already. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the oh. fact that you have limited resources and, uh, limited capacity and you're looking to save wherever you can, a scam like this could befall virtually any, any small business. Sure. And so that's a lot of what I've been thinking about. And I just wondered what thoughts you had on that and, um, any suggestions for what they can do to keep themselves 
sharp, I guess, Bose, and when looking out for this kind of stuff. I do. I have I have all sorts of stuff in terms of even what the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, uh, what they say uh, about the increased vulnerability that small businesses have to to occupational fraud. But obviously, those same vulnerabilities extend to fraud that, that arises from outside the company. Occupational fraud is defined as someone inside the company who's ripping off the company. But the same the same uh, the same constraints that small businesses have do that. But I think that's that's one of my lessons learned. I don't want to talk about it till after the break and you can't make me. I won't. You're absolutely right. Thank you for reminding me that we are going to talk about that right after this. Do your clients need help with sales tax automation? Well, Avalara can help your accounting practice start or grow an existing tax compliance practice while you gain efficiencies and reduce risk for you and for your clients. Learn more about Avalara for accountants and you'll get a free gift. All you have to do is meet with an expert to explore how Avalara can help your accounting practice grow and you'll receive a $50 gift card. Contact Avalara at accountants at avalara.com and mention the code fraud. So Greg, did you get a sense of how they were able to get away with this scam for as long as they did? Because I mean, most frauds, as you well know, uh, citing ACFE uh, data points or factoids or whatever it is, most frauds do not, they don't come even close to lasting multi-decade. So what's the sense that you got? How how did they keep it going for so long? It it was, I mean, just in a nutshell, it was just plain intimidation. These guys came in with all the confidence saying, no, legally, you need to do this. You agreed to this. And again, it's what you were talking about with small businesses. Small businesses are not equipped to deal with with anything that's sophisticated if anything what they are trained to do is to avoid these kind of conflicts it, it lasted for 40 years because they would intimidate these small businesses into just taking it and they were so on the cusp of not being illegal mm. that they didn't get shut down earlier although they had like you said hundreds of complaints and they had they were hundreds they were of thousands clearly on the authority thousands of hundreds complaints. of thousands i guess hundreds of i got all of it combined hundreds of thousands <laughs> of complaints and they were already on the on the uh the police's radar because of all that but like i said they were over the edge in terms of the fraud but not so far that people were going to take it down one thing that i want to make sure everyone understands we talked about this a little bit, but you're going to do a good job of explaining it is maybe it got lost. So let's just clarify for everybody. What exactly, like what was the fraud that was happening? Like what was the the illegal activity that was happening in this particular scheme? And I think one of the ways to attack that question and to clarify that is to start by saying exactly what they did that was not illegal. Because like I said before, one of the things that stuck out to me when I first read this case was that they were like going, oh, these people were jackasses because they were charging these nonprofits 10 times what toner was really, you know, what they could have bought toner for elsewhere. And the first thing that came to my mind is that's not illegal. You can sell stuff for as much as a willing buyer is willing to spend spend for it. So that's, that's not illegal. So I, I looked into some, some specific crimes related to pricing and the two that I looked at, they did not violate one of them's price gouging mm. and price gouging is when some, something bad happens, you know, like there's a hurricane. And so you start charging, you know, $50 for a bottle of water. Right. That's, and that's price gouging. I don't think any, I don't think there's any natural disaster or any kind of uh, emergency situation. There's no wildfires in California that are going to make people rush to get more toner cartridges. Yeah. So price gouging is not it. A- an interesting little side fact about price gouging is that there are 10 states, because it's a state-by-state thing for price gouging, 10 states where it is not illegal, including Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington State, and Wyoming. Yeah. Those guys, they don't care 
that you can gouge the prices as much as you want. Yeah, but it's a little. These guys will locate. Well, I, I just one thing that I'd like to add is, if I'm not mistaken, there's kind of a school of economic thought that says price gouging is fine. It's kind of weird, but like basic economics, right? Demand, mm -hmm. supply, willing buyer, willing seller. Like there's yeah. there's some school of economic thought that that basically is of the opinion that price gouging, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Right. And those people are horrible people. Yes. And they typically no live in Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, <laughs> New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington State, and Wyoming. I grew up in Washington State. I grew I up know in Nebraska. This for a fact. I grew up in so Nebraska. So there we go. So nobody questioned us. We know what we're talking about. The second thing that they did not do wrong is price fixing. Price fixing is also illegal. Price fixing is where two or more people, two, two or more people, and it's typically competitors, they collude to keep prices artificially high. That is a federal crime and it's prohibited under the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. But again, that's not how these prices were artificially high. There's also illegal selling practices. I want, I looked up to see it is are aggressive selling practices illegal. And, and there are certain practices that are a bait and switch is illegal, but that's not what they were doing. A bait and switch is where you say, Hey, come on into the dealership. We've got, we've got a Camaro that we're selling for $150. And then you show up and they go, yeah, there's no Camaro, but here I've got this, uh, I've got this Subaru Outback that's for 25,000 that I can sell you instead. That's a bait and switch. They weren't doing that. Fraudulent misrepresentation of your product. That's where you say, hey, you buy our toner cartridges. These things, they'll last you easily five years when you know they're really only going to last you five months. They weren't doing that. Misrepresenting customers. That's where you call up and say, hey, hey, Alabama Christian Preschool, we just sold uh, we just sold a bunch of toner cartridges to the Alabama Jewish preschool down the street. Don't you want to keep up with the Jewish preschool uh, and the Muslim preschool also bought a bunch of our toner cartridges? You don't want to be left out, do you? When in fact, they didn't sell to the Jewish preschool or the Muslim preschool. That's misrepresenting your customers. They didn't do that. One thing that I do believe that they did, at least in part, is something called inertia selling, which is a very interesting practice. That's where uh, you have a customer that didn't ask for a product, but you send it to them anyways, and you send them a bill, and then you call them and say, hey, pay us our money. We sent you the toner. And they say, we didn't ask for the toner. And they say, well, if you send it back, we're going to have to charge you restocking fees to so send us your stocking fee. All that's totally illegal. And the funny thing is, is if you are the person who receives the merchandise that you did not order, it's a hundred percent legal for you to just say, Hey, we didn't order this. So we're keeping you. it. We're not returning it. Thanks for the toner. Yep. Suckers. Who's the toner pirate now, bitch. That's really <laughs> the response that you're supposed to make in that situation. So make note like of I that, said, those are, the, make note of those that. are the things that were not well, other than inertia selling, I believe that they did some of that. That's what I took away from this case, but what they did do that was illegal. And, and Caleb, I think you've got a little more detail than I do about yep. this. So it's just the lying. They lied about who they were. <laughs> right, right. So the New York Times, at least for Gilbert Michaels, the, the godfather of toner pirates, here's from the Times. Uh, a federal jury found Mr. Michaels guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud, 10 counts of mail fraud, and five counts of money laundering after a six-week trial. So mostly mail fraud and uh, money laundering, which uh, I, I, we're not really getting into that. But the mail fraud seems to be like the main thing. And, and you're right. It seems as though if they were... If there was a boiler room, the one thing that occurred to me, it's like, well, there's got to be wire fraud because if people are on the phones, like if you're basically committing fraud over the phone, that's basically wire fraud. If you're committing fraud over yeah. email, that's basically wire fraud. But the, they got them on the mail fraud. And if I understand the mail fraud correctly, that is the the misrepresentation of fact based on the business dealings, right? Like the phony invoices, misrepresenting the reps, like all of that stuff, right? Yeah, and and my guess with that, Caleb, is that it probably was came down to what's the easier conviction? Is it wire yeah. fraud or is it mail fraud? And if somebody can say, look, here's an invoice that they sent me through the United States Postal Service, right. that's that's tangible evidence that you can't get away from. 
Whereas probably the victims did not have tape recordings of the phone conversations that they had with the boiler room workers. Right. And probably no email, probably no emails. And yeah, right. Exactly. So likely it was just the easier conviction. I think you have a very strong case for saying that they committed wire fraud, but you know, everybody's a little bit lazy. So let's go for the layup, which is the with the, the mail fraud. fraud. That's my guess. Yeah. I wasn't part of the prosecuting team, so I can't tell you firsthand right. if that was it. Here's some of the other interesting things uh, that I thought about this case, Caleb. Yeah. Uh, back to the whole uh, small business and nonprofit and that the, the they're more, uh, they, they are more vulnerable to frauds than larger organizations. And one of the things that, that we see from the ACFE, and I think this is very interesting uh, data that they produce every two years. In the ACFE's reports of the nation, this comes from the 2020 reports of the nation's most recent one as of this recording, uh, was that small businesses, the median loss for occupational fraud for small businesses, the median loss was $150,000, but the median loss overall for all affected organizations was only $125,000. So small businesses, even though they have less money than your, than your gigantic uh, companies, the actual dollar amount of damage done to them is significantly more. And that comes back to what we're talking about. They don't have the staff or the sophistication to have the internal controls that they need to, to be able to evade this type of uh, fraudulent activity. Right. And I think the other thing, and you kind of touched on this, but maybe you didn't say it quite as explicitly, the amount of the fraud is just that much more devastating for the small business, even if it's a small amount, right. it's a lot to each of those individual businesses. In yeah. a lot of cases, it's probably enough to turn out their lights. There's just far more sophisticated frauds out there these days. But this goes to show you just even oh. something, <laughs> right? As something that a- analog versus digital. This yeah. is a pretty. This is old school. They were going old school with yeah. this fraud. Yeah, and yeah, so absolutely, it it. it, it Small businesses are just, they, they've got it coming from all sides. And so if we bring it back home to our, our, our friends in the accounting world, Greg, you, you've talked to a lot of firms over the years, you're, you know, in, in, in your, in your work, what can accountants do to, for, for small businesses that are strapped for resources, strapped for, uh, controls, strapped for, for protecting themselves, like as, as somebody who could advise them, like, what can they do? What kind of, what kind of help can they provide or what kind of advice can they bestow so that firms don't fall prey to stuff like this? Well, one of the, one of the main internal controls that, uh, that firms can help their clients implement that would have, that would have uh, like made them immune to this front is just that, I mean, it's a pretty basic control, but at the same time, you typically don't have it in smaller businesses. You have it in larger ones where you have an approved vendor list. Where And it's not just because, again, these guys were lying. They were saying, hey, we're so-and-so. We're the ones who usually help you with your toner. What an approved vendor list is, isn't just the name of the company, but it's also the address of the company. It's also the account number that you have with the company so that when you get an invoice from them, you got to match all that stuff up before you send out a, a check. But again, what's difficult is is that it's a pretty simple control to put in place but it's not without effort to implement it. And that's that's the resource that we've even said already in this podcast that small businesses often don't have is they just don't have the man, even if they know what they're supposed to do, they're like, well, I've got a hundred other things that I got to do today. I know at my job that every invoice that comes in, I should double check the math on the invoice. That that actually just happened today. I got an invoice at work for something it, that was $14,000 that's usually at most, like it's a monthly bill we get, and at most it's like a quarter of that. And so that was why I was like, wait a second, let me see, how'd they get $14,000 on this bill? And I went back and checked the math. It was just a fat finger error where... <laughs> It was $1,400 and they just put an extra digit in it. And I, I don't think that it was a nefarious act. I think it was an honest mistake, but I don't check the math on the invoices unless something's glaring like that. But 
best practices would say every single invoice that I pay, I redo their math to make sure that the bill was right. And I don't have the time to do that. And I'm not going to take the time to do that. And I'm sure that I've overpaid certain vendors because of it. So it's the same thing here where it's like, it might be a great thing to do, but can you actually implement it? The other thing, Caleb, that sucks about this is kind of the same thing we got into with attorneys where you go, these guys are threatening legal action. So I've got two options. I can go hire an attorney for a crap ton of money to fight this toner charge. That's a, a lot, but I, I don't have, if I don't have enough money to pay the toner bill, I don't have enough money to pay the attorney. Same thing with this. If I don't have enough money to pay for this toner, I probably don't have enough money to go to a CPA to say, hey, will you please help me implement an effective set of internal controls to protect <laughs> right. myself against toner fraud? That's not going to happen. So it's really, it sucks. And it's kind of a catch 22. But to your question, that is the internal control that would have eradicated this fraud from the potential victims. Right. And what one, one last, I got one last thing. Do it. About this. That, that's mostly just, it's almost trivia and it might even be very obvious to people anyways, but we've got, we got a picture here. I, I printed it out on canary paper. We got a picture uh, and you can Google it. If you find a picture of him, he looks like he's David Bowie's realtor brother. I think he, he looks like if VH1 did a, where are they now about Rick Astley, that could, you could put him in there and that could be it. He's, he looks like Anthony, Anthony Bourdain. If Anthony Bourdain were a cocaine drug Lord. So basically I'm just saying he looks kind of like Anthony Bourdain, but one of the, one of the studies that people have done is they've looked at people's faces. They've like, and they've like had computers analyze the faces of fraudsters and determine have robots determine based on objective facts, how masculine someone's face is and the masculinity of the face is it like correlates to the likelihood of that person committing fraud. And so, uh, what you see here is you see a guy that I, that I don't know, I don't know how masculine his face is, but I'm going to say based on his fraud, it's more masculine than it appears in this picture. I mean, nobody, nobody's saying that Rick Astley is not a, is not a manly man. I'll just say that. He's, I'll tell you what, he's not. Uh, our final segment is a view to a fraud. This is where we relish in our hindsight and thank our lucky stars that we've never bought printer toner from someone who looks like Margot Robbie's character in focus. Greg, what was the big takeaway from this story for you? I think for me, the biggest takeaway from this fraud is the vulnerability of small businesses and nonprofits. And, 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 and really it's almost, it's almost just this like, this uh, intractable problem where you've got these small businesses that don't have the resources, whether that's time or money or know-how to really protect themselves from these people that want to prey on them like Gilbert Michaels, our printer toner pirate king. And really a lot of what they need to do is just have some basic skills and some basic policies and procedures in place to make sure that they don't get taken advantage of. The, the easiest one is to have an approved vendor list go. Nobody buys anything from any vendors unless you've already got them on this approved vendor list. But it can even be simpler than that of just trying to ask more questions before you sign a legal document and send it back to somebody. That's pretty basic of just going, hey, uh, maybe, maybe check with someone else at the company or at the, at our nonprofit before you legally bind us to pay our hard earned money for anything, whether that's toner or paper clips or, or a new facility. What about you, Caleb? What's uh what's your big takeaway from this one? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. I think small businesses are very, very vulnerable to these types of scams and, uh, by the sheer number of the businesses who fell victim to it. There's yep. your proof right there. You know, I think what accountants should think about is what role do you play 
for, especially if you serve small businesses, to what extent can you act as more of a guardian for these types of vulnerable businesses? And I know people like historically people, accountants are, they, they eschew, is that the right word? Eschew? Eschew? Eschew. Yeah. Eschew. eschew. Like what they goes eschew. over your a sock, you're a shoe. <laughs> They, they avoid, they avoid having to deal with fraud historically because there's this huge, they feel like there's this huge liability risk. I understand that vulnerability that firms have, but by the same token, I think firms owe it to their clients to take on the role to be kind of a guardian, to be kind of a big brother or, or big sister or whatever it is. Pick your metaphor. I don't know. But what I'm saying <laughs> is small businesses need as much, as, as much help as they can get. And I think accountants are well-equipped to educate them and, and guide them or just, just build awareness and educate them. I think accountants can really take a bigger role in preventing fraud or at least or at least mitigating it in an effective way just by the the examples that you gave Greg. And so I'd really like to see more accountants take a, a more proactive approach to this because right now I just think I think the profession is just kind of saying, eh, that's not for me, too risky." It's like, do you want to help people or do you not want to help people? Right. You know, there's the disclaimer there's a disclaimer in our opinion that says that our job is not to, to, to discover fraud. So you're on your own, sucker. We did what we're supposed to do. And there's one other big takeaway that I want to touch on really quick because because uh, Gilbert Michaels was fined $200,000 for his crime, but he also bilked in a six-year period like $126 million from people. Mm -hmm. He had over 50,000 uh, victims of his fraud. So the other takeaway is if you're committing fraud, you really need to diversify. The more <laughs> victims that you have, the more, the, really, the more return on investments you have. It's like diversifying your stock portfolio. You just got to have lots and lots of victims, not just occupational fraud. You're just stealing from your employer. That's all. That's that's the dummies way. You got to go like the ballers, like Gilbert Michaels, and have as many victims as possible because they're not all going to come forward. It's just a numbers game. That's it for this week's show. Oh My Fraud is a production of uh, All My New Kites. I just made that up. It's a, 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 a amalgamation, amalgamation of our names. I don't know. Anyway, this episode was written by Caleb Douglas and Greg Kite. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Blake Oliver. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time for more stories of avarice swindlers and scams that will make you say, Oh My Fraud.